Three things I want us to see in here. Repentance begins where you are or where you're stuck. Repentance is about direction, not distance. And repentance doesn't earn God's mercy. It responds to it. Let me pray. Father, wherever we are coming from tonight, skepticism about stories like this or this passage, or maybe we believe the account, but we're skeptical it has anything to do with us. Maybe we're skeptical that you're good, skeptical that you're patient. We would pray that tonight you would bring your grace and do the very things we see happening in this man's life. In the lowest, worst, rock bottom of places you met him. Not just with a dispensation of your grace or a little little packaged tangible sign of your grace, but you met him with yourself. And we pray that tonight you would meet us with yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Harvey Weinstein is a name that a lot of us would not have known until a few years ago. In October 2017, the news started leaking in magazines, in news media outlets across the internet. It goes viral that this man, who is the kingmaker or queenmaker of Hollywood, uh, had, it was also a serial sexual abuser. He had used his power in L.A. and in New York uh, basically to be a gatekeeper. If you're an A-list or B-list actress and you want to be in a movie, if you want your career to advance, Harvey Weinstein is standing in between you and your dreams. And he would like to do some stuff with you for you to fulfill your dreams. Dozens of women end up coming forward and sharing their accounts of what he did to them over the past couple of decades. It was getting out of control. This is a man who just paid lawyers to squash these stories before. It was too big this time. It was getting out everywhere. This time his job was at risk, unlike all the other times the rumors swirled. So he sends out an email to all of his colleagues in the entertainment industry. This is a man painted into a corner. He's trapped. He's desperate. He blasts out this email on the week he thinks he might lose his job. And the Hollywood reporter somehow got a hold of it and leaked it. And this is a paragraph or two from that letter. Weinstein says to his friends, my board is thinking of firing me. All I'm asking is let me take a leave of absence and get into heavy therapy and counseling, whether it be in a facility or somewhere else. Allow me to resurrect myself with a second chance. A lot of the allegations are false, as as you know, but given therapy and counseling as other people have done, I think I'd be able to get there. I could really use your support. If you're able to, I need you to send a letter to my private Gmail address. The letter would only go to the board and no one else. We believe what the board is trying to do to me is not only wrong, but might be illegal and would destroy the company. If you could write this letter backing me, getting me the help in time that I need away, and also stating your opposition to the board firing me, I would, it would help me out a lot. I'm desperate for your help. Just give me the time to have therapy. Don't let me be fired. If the industry supports me, that's all I need. With all due respect, I need the letter today. Here is a titan of New York and Hollywood. He is a career maker. He makes you king. He makes you queen. He gives you your dreams. And he's on his hands and knees begging his friends to write a letter of recommendation, pleading with his board not to fire him. And it's desperate and it's urgent. Here's, here's the touch point of this story to our stories. I read that letter and I, it sounds deeply familiar. Harvey Weinstein had run and run and run. 
he had made a really big mess of his own making, right? Decades using power and influence to use women uh, for his own lusts. He had gotten himself into a really big pit. He was desperate. And this is his default way of trying to get himself out of it. And I think there's a few areas that this seems particularly familiar to us. The way that Harvey Weinstein tried to get himself back into people's good graces and to get back on the right page, I think is often what I hear my own internal dialogue saying and whispering to me. And it's what I hear from you a lot as well as we talk through our lives. It's a couple things in Weinstein's approach that I find familiar. This kind of, you can call this Harvey repentance. It's characterized, it's it's guarded by a self-justification. Did you pick up on that? He, he, He throws a grenade at the board and he says, we believe what the board is trying to do is wrong. This is a man who had multiple criminal investigations, dozens of credible accounts. And he's saying what the board is doing to me is evil and wrong. And a lot of the allegations are false, as you know. We might add from our lives, dialogue or thoughts that go like this after we've gotten ourselves into a mess of our own making, dug a pit or in these miserable places where we don't know how we got there, but we're trying desperately to get out. And we start diluting the severity of the seriousness of what maybe we have done or the impact of our actions or our behaviors or our inaction. And we say things, self-justifying things like, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. Or is this even really that wrong? In the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. Or maybe it's more ferocious. Maybe it's, it's, self, maybe it's accusing God of evil. These are things I've, I, I hear, things sometimes I think. God hates me. Are you going to do everything in your power to mess up everything in my life? Every piece of my life you're messing up. And in these ways, we justify ourselves by condemning him. Well, it's guarded by self-justification. It's driven by self-preservation. Did you catch that? This is a, a very proud man saying very weak things. I'm desperate. Don't let me be fired. Just give me the time to have therapy. So we'll get into these pleading kind of things. We'll say uncle, maybe a little bit prematurely, not before we feel the pain And really want to change, but just to kind of stop the process and say, okay, God, I get it. Five weeks into the Jonah series, I'll cut back a little bit on the party scene on the weekend. And we say these things to preserve ourselves. What self are we preserving? we're, We're preserving a self that wants to deal with God on my terms. A self that wants to maintain editing rights, that, that insists on veto power, that refuses to yield, to listen. We've talked about this the past month. We preserve ourselves, even in our attempts to change, to repent, to stop doing certain things, to turn our lives around. We preserve ourselves. So it's guarded by self-justification, driven by self-preservation, and it's aimed at self-resurrection. That's amazing. He said the word. Give me a shot at resurrecting myself by giving me a second chance. It's crazy. He says the words. And we think in our own heads, in the isolation of our own heads and emotions, we kind of go into self-resurrection mode. Okay, I'm just going to will this. I, Herb, 
I'm not going to care what she thinks about me anymore. I'm not going to care what she thinks about me anymore. I don't care about her opinion. Whatever. Forget her. We try to push death away or push the stuff we're addicted to or stuck to away and pull ourselves back to life. And we feel this weight and this loneliness and this silence and isolation of not only being the cause of our biggest problems, but isn't it weird? Don't you see this too? Like you also see yourself as the only solution to your biggest problems. It's this weird irony. I got myself into this. It was my little decisions that got me stuck in these patterns. But then when we get to these places, when we think about repentance and change in the way that Harvey thinks about, we also see ourselves as our only escape out of the stuff we got ourselves into, right? I got myself into it. I got to get myself out. And it just doubles the weight on all of us. Add all of this up. And it's a self-contained system of salvation. Uh, Here's the gospel. Here's the good news of Christianity. Here's what the Bible, this is the story of the Bible. God meets you on your turf and his terms. We'll come back to that in a second. What's Harvey's gospel? What's Harvey's philosophy of life? That's also kind of the default philosophy of our lives. A lot of times it's that I want to live my life on my terms and when I blow it, when I whiff, when I botch it, when I drop the ball, when I run, I get scared and I think that I got to go find God on his turf. The actual narrative of our lives, believer, not believer, whatever, is the reverse of the gospel. I relate to God on my terms and meet him on his turf. So we've talked about the my terms, but it's basically, it's my life. It's my agenda. I will kind of do the little church thing, but stay over there. I get veto power. I don't really want to listen to you or walk with you. But when we get into the predicaments, when we get into a bind, we think I'm stuck here and God is somewhere else. He's not here. He's somewhere else. He's where I should be. He's where I was when I decided to leave him or coast. He's in heaven. I don't know where he is, but he's not where I am now. And so I'm left to grope my way through the dark to find my way back to him. Add up enough days of that and that becomes your life. Your life is one long story of looking for a God you can't find because he's not where you are. He's where you think you should be, but we don't even know how to get our way back to that. I said the gospel is the opposite of this. The good news of the Bible is that God meets you on your turf, on my turf, and on his terms. What is my turf? It's the first point I said we talk about. It's wherever you're stuck. It's wherever you are. That's a really wide spectrum in a room with this many people, right? That could mean, I know I don't know this God and I don't like him. I'm here because a friend came or whatever else. Or it could be, I know I know him and I know I love him. But I don't know, I'd never imagined I would do that thing or go that far in this area. Or I'm confused, or I don't know what to do with my future. Or I don't know what to do with this relationship that's blowing up. Where are you? That's where God is. Where are you stuck? Some of you in in a life-encompassing way are stuck. Stuck describes life for you right now. Where is God? There. Some of you, it's little pieces of your life. You feel stuck. Wheels are spinning. You're not getting anywhere. You're getting very discouraged. Very, you're starting to question, where is he? Where is God? He's there. He meets us on our turf and his terms. What is his terms? 
the reverse of the Harvey syndrome. We, we want to justify ourselves to him, downplay the seriousness of what we've done. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Enough with the self-justification. Do you want to be justified? I'll justify you freely. Do you want a, do you want a justification so you don't, you don't have to hide, you don't have to spin, you don't have to do the PR campaign? You don't have to explain away every little thing so that you don't need him that bad. You want to be justified. I'll justify you. His terms is stop with the self-preservation. The self that we are preserving is dead. It's decaying. It's disintegrating. It's, it's fleshy. It's worldly. It's ugly. It's hurting people. It's not worth. It's a corpse. It's not worth you day after day trying to resuscitate it and cling to it and guard it. When I come to you to take that self, it's not to take you. You want a new self? You want a true self? I'll give you that. I'll make you new. You'll know who you are. You'll know who I am. You'll know why you're here. And he says, he says to our attempts to resurrect ourselves. Let me tell you the story about the one who is resurrection and who is life. Stop, stop being the corpse that's trying to do CPR on yourself. It's a mental delusion. Nothing is happening. You want resurrection? I'll give you resurrection. I am resurrection. That's the gospel. And this is all very, very different than everything that we talk about. So how do we get to a place where we start thinking and relating to God in this kind of a way. And we stop thinking about change in a self-driven effort, self-preserving, self-justifying, self-resurrecting kind of a way. How do we get to a place where we begin to think about change and growth and repentance and nearness to God in a life-giving godly way? Well, two words that we've talked about for a month, mercy storms. The nature of our heart, it's drawn to these things. When I get in a pit, I try to climb my way out of a pit. When I get myself into a mess or a pattern or a habitual pattern or whatever, I try to get myself out. And so God in his mercy will either send that month of drizzle, the subtle mercy storm, to grab your attention and to draw you back. Or he'll send what he sent to Jonah, which demands to be dealt with, which demands our attention and gets us in a sense in a very merciful but severe way by the scruff of the neck. That's how God wakes us up and breaks us free from Harvey syndrome. Do you see, if you've been here the past month, do you see Harvey syndrome and Jonah, what we've talked about the past few weeks? It's all there, right? The denial of what really happened, the, the attempt to kind of make things better through the sailors and through him. Maybe if we say some prayers, maybe if we offer some sacrifices, all of this is in Jonah and God is bringing Jonah to an end of himself so that Jonah might realize how to actually relate to this God. I get it. I'm aware of the clock. We've spent 20 minutes plowing our hearts so that Jonah too can be a seed planted in a softened heart where the crust on the top has been broken up a little more. So now we can see and ask the question, do you really want to change? Have you found yourself in the past month as you hear the word of God delivered to your doorstep every Wednesday, every Sunday, whenever? Have you found yourself either consciously or subconsciously running from God doing the strong arm? Have you found yourself 
tuning out his voice and listening to other voices? I have every week, every week, every day. If you're in the same situation, do you want to know how to really change in a way that will bring you back to life and not kill you? In a way that will, uh, that will not just leave you bitter and resentful towards God, but actually more and more and more and more and more in love with him. Well, if you do, Jonah 2 is for you. We've already talked about a lot of it, but a quick pass over those three points. The first thing, repentance begins where you are on your turf. We said that. It doesn't start where you wish you were. It doesn't start where you think you should be. It doesn't start where in our over-spiritualized kind of mindset we think repentance should start. If you have a hard heart, repentance starts in the midst of the hardened heart. If you've been drifting and coasting and prayerless, repentance starts in the midst of drifting and coasting and prayerlessness. If you did something last week you never imagined you would ever do and you can't take it back, repentance starts having had a week last week where you did something you could never imagine doing and you can't undo it. Whatever your coordinates are is where the doorway of repentance stands in front of you. Where could repentance have begun for Jonah? Where could it have happened? You track through the story. It could have happened almost at any point. He hears the words. Is it verse one, verse two? Jonah, son of Amittai, rise up, go to Nineveh, Nineveh, preach to them. Jonah hears that and he is like, he's a mixture. He's a mess. Panic. Go where? What does this mean for me? Confusion. Are you serious? Did I hear you right? Maybe racism or or ethnocentrism, the Ninevites, why do they need to hear about your grace? He could have repented at that moment, hearing this confusing word of God that he didn't know what to do with. He couldn't wrap his head around it. He didn't know how it fit with his story. Three or four or five seconds in could have dropped to his knees and said, God, I don't know. What do you mean by this? I'm terrified by this. Help me understand. He could have repented when he started concocting the plan that he could, it was possible to get out of the presence of a transcendent God who fills the earth and all of creation with the fullness of his presence. He could have been on the way down to Joppa, just having, you know, talked to the banker, give me all my life savings. She's like, wait, all of it? What are you doing? He could have stopped there. He could have said, this is craziness. I can't. What am I doing? Father, my heart is hard. I don't even understand. Help. He could have done it when he got to the harbor. He could have done it when he got on the boat. He could have done it a few hours after on the boat. Said, what am I doing? Guys, turn the ship around or as soon as I get to Tarshish, I'm coming back. He could have done it in the storm. He could have done it in the ocean. He could have done it in the depths. Where? Did he first start talking to God? Not on the boat, not at the harbor, not on the way down to Joppa, not in the storm, not in the ocean, not in the depths, in the fish. It's the first recorded time in the book of Jonah where Jonah talks to God. Where does repentance start? Jonah is in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. Jonah compares his location to Sheol, which is the worse than the Hebrew equivalent of what we think of as hell. It's as close to total, utter abandonment from God 
that you can get. The absolute absence of God and his grace or his presence or whatever else. Sheol was a place of hopelessness. Sheol was a place of death. And Jonah says in here, I cried out of the depths of the belly of Sheol. I cried. Jonah is in a living hell and he got there because of Jonah. Where does repentance start? Even if you're in a living hell, even if it's a mess of your own making, there is a doorway back home, back to God where you are. I can't apply that to your story. I don't know all of your stories, but it gets juicy when you start asking, where am I? Really, honestly, where am I? No more posturing. Where am I? That doorway back to this God is there, even if I say I'm in hell. That's where repentance starts. Paul Tripp says hopelessness is the doorway to hope. Are you at a rock bottom place? Have you ever been at a rock bottom place? I have. And I realize it's not singular, but it's rock bottom places. Because every couple of years it keeps happening. And those are places that seem devoid of all hope, devoid of all help. But they're actually doorways into new opportunities. Why is there hope even in a place like the depths of Sheol or a fish at the bottom of the ocean, away from the presence of God when you yourself got yourself there? How is there hope? Remember what we said. Who is there? This God is there. It's the only reason there's hope. If your heart is as hard as Jonah's or as hard as yours might be now, you have no hope of your heart softening and wanting God. Did you know that even to want God, he has to give you grace even to want him? You can't even think about him apart from his allowing that to happen. Softening your heart giving you the desire for himself, convicting you of your sin, waking you up to your condition for any of those things to happen. They must start with his grace to you. Why is it possible that wherever you are is a beautiful starting place of repentance and change? Because God is there and this God is there. A lover of sinners, a helper of the weak. The second thing, repentance is about direction, not distance. I have found this so helpful as, as you guys have shared your stories with me over the past year. I sit there thinking about what you're saying and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is my life. What this girl's talking about. This is my life now. What this guy's struggling with is me right now. And so it forces me to go back and work through this stuff on my own. Here's why I think a lot of us, when we think of repentance, change, living by faith, we get daunted. We give up. We think it's just absolutely overwhelming. Whatever that thing is for you, the eating disorder, the cutting, the porn, the masturbation, whatever it is that you can't break, getting up at nine o'clock on a weekend, you're like, I told myself I'd get up and actually make that 8 a.m. and I can't do it. What's wrong with me? Whatever that place is for you, we think of change as a giant 10 mile leap from where you are to way over there where you think you need to be. Or where, let's say we should be there. Let's say we should be diligent. Let's say we should be self-controlled. Let's say that's valid. But we're over here and the goal is way over there. And are you like me? You look at that and you're like, well, what's the point? 
This is now the psychology we all think. What's the point of fighting against this? What's the point of not giving in again and having a horrible day? Because I am never going to get over there. Friends, repentance is never about distance or pace or stride. It's direction. Which way are you facing? There was a, a, a kind of a math problem that a guy named David Pallison in a book that I've read, he's talking about these old math problems we got when we were kids. Like if a, you know, if a woman's driving from Philadelphia to Richmond, Virginia at this many miles per hour, but then she gets in a traffic jam for one hour and is only driving this fast. And then she speeds up. How long does the whole trip take her? And he, he asked in the book, is that how you view the process of change or sanctification or repentance? It's all a question of how is your performance this past week? How fast are you changing? How quickly are you maturing? And he says, no, it's not that at all. He says the most decisive factor in that problem is, are you driving towards Richmond or are you driving towards New York? You can be driving beautifully fast in the fast lane, thinking everything's going great, going in the wrong direction. Direction is what's decisive. Where is Jonah's direction facing? For the first time, after God had stripped him of all the pretense, all the posturing, all the faking, all the lying, all the, all the stiff arming, when God got Jonah, just Jonah at his core, where did he look? To the Lord. Ironically, the sailors had already looked to the Lord, right? Remember that? They'd already prayed to the Lord. It's the first time Jonah talks to God. His direction changes. It's an early mark of repentance. Repentance is not about distance. And so if I'm over here stuck in my stuff and we believe everything we've already said, God is there. He's there with his resources. He starts where you are. He meets you where you are. Then this is repentance. Watch. That's repentance. That's faith. As I look to this good God, if you see God as a father, who, who looks at his toddler and beats him across the face because he says, why don't you know how to walk yet? You're two and a half. You'll never even attempt to change. You will hate him so much. But do you know that this God shows himself to be throughout Scripture as the father who gets down on his hands and knees, meeting the toddler where she is? And all he cares about, all he's focused on is, let's get that chubby little leg planted so she can get up. Then a little bit of a shift of a weight forward. And she stands for two seconds and he takes Instagram stories of it and says, look, she's kind of walking. <laughs> Do you know that's how God looks at your repentance? Did you know that? Or do you think he is the verbally abusive father who hates you because you're still over there? Do you know what he wants from you? Your eyes. Fixed on him. As the source of your joy, as the source of your change, as the power for repentance. To look at him and say, I ran. I ran. I thought the worst, most satanic things about you. I believed you're a murderer. I, I did it again. Have mercy on me. Help me. And so you're over here. And you get your friends or a pastor or somebody. You're like, let's just talk about the next Itty bitty little baby step of tiny little faith, tiny little change. What's a, what's the next choice point you face? If you're the person who fell yesterday, 
you fell back into the shame, back into the guilt. What's the next baby step for you? Probably because that memory is fresh in your mind. The next choice point, the next fork in the road for you, where you're either going to walk, you're either going to run away in in a fleshy, worldly way, or you're going to move towards God in a faithful way. That fork in the road is probably going to be like, how are you going to respond to your failure? How are you going to react to the shame you now feel in a fleshy, worldly, godless, unbelieving way? Or in a way that looks at this God who covers shame and who says, my mercy is new every morning. Why? You need it to be new every morning. Do you? I do. Or every minute. Do you see what's the next choice point you face? That's where this repentance plays itself out. What's the next thing? Jonah faced that. Do I just die a bitter man in the belly of this fish and curse God as I die? Or do I begin to realize his mercy has already been chasing me? The storm was his. Jonah says it. Did you pick up on it? You, your bellows, your winds. The sailors were God crying out to Jonah, repent, turn around. And he begins to see that was God's mercy. The fish was God's mercy. Jonah didn't know it was going to happen. He jumps into with a, off a cruise ship into a hurricane, 60 foot waves. What do you think would happen to you? I'm dead. This is it. I'm not getting out of this alive. The fish was mercy too. And this is our last and final point. Repentance. Repentance. It doesn't just begin where we are. It's not just about uh, direction. But repentance does not cause God to be merciful to you. Repentance simply responds to mercy he's already shown. Change, turning around, ceasing running and turning around and beginning to baby step your way back as you pray to him for grace to baby step your way back is driven by his mercy. It's not the cause of his mercy. Freshman last week, you heard Romans 2, 4. Do you not know that the goodness, kindness and patience of God is designed to lead you to repentance? Not did you know that repentance causes God to be good, kind and patient? This will free you and turn your world upside down in a way you never imagined. This, do these things to get God to be patient, kind, and good to you, will ruin you and you will hate him. That's the lives of some of you. It was the life that I lived for so many years in the church. I just didn't get it. I had a phenomenal parents. I was told everything you should be told. The church I went to. I heard it all. I read the Bible. I went to church. The dots just didn't connect until God sent a mercy storm in my life, senior year at UGA, and rocked my world and terrified me to my core. For the first time, he had my full, undivided attention. And he began to reveal to me that where I was, this was the hinge for me, where I was, which was a miserable, hellish, dark shamed, guilty, stuck place is where he was. That's the gospel. God meets you on your turf and on his terms. Don't you dare try to pay for this. Don't you dare try to deny your need of it. Don't you dare try to resurrect yourself. Don't you dare. I'll give you resurrection. I'll justify you. The last sentence I want to say is this. We're going to pick up on it next week because it's more of the focus of the rest of Jonah's prayer. But Jonah, his direction changes, not just in a weird abstract way. He looks back to God or he starts talking to God. 
But he look, he says, I look to your temple. Did you pick up on that? Verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight yet. Yet. A new day is coming and yet again, I shall look at your temple. Why the temple? He says it again later. Why the temple? The temple Jonah knew as a prophet, as a good Jew, the temple is where the sacrifices were made to purify you and to release you from your sins. The temple is where the scapegoat was offered every day. And the blood of that goat was sprinkled in substitution for the people's sins. Jonah's eyes aren't just generically focused to some God figure or higher power. Jonah is looking at a God whose love, like we talked about last week, is always a substitutionary love. My life for yours. Jonah looks to that temple and Jonah sees that smoke coming up in his mind's eye of that of that goat being sacrificed, pacifying, absorbing the anger of God that that sinners might walk free, innocent, justified, resurrected. And he says, that's a God I can move towards. That's a God who is patient. That's a God who pursues. That's a God of grace. In that moment, we see something so much clearer than Jonah. Jonah saw goats and smoke. And we look back on the Temple Mount and we see the true Lamb of God who poured himself out and walked to the deepest pits of hell of Sheol so that you might be able to repent, so that God would relate to you the way I described. So friends, why not repent? Why not start talking to God again tonight? Why not walk back home with him? Let's pray. Jesus, we need this. We need you. We need you to help us. We need you to meet us where we are with your grace. It's true. We struggle to believe it. We struggle for it to get into our heads and our bones, and we just need that. We pray that you would help us. We ask this in your name. Amen.